You're listening to Randall Wallace Presents, formerly Bridging the Political Gap, the number one American history podcast of 2024 by Feedspot.com. We're getting an intriguing new look inside the Nixon White House, thanks to the latest notes, memos, and tape recordings released today. The Nixon Presidential Library has just made public material that shows both a powerful president and a doting dad in unguarded moments just before crisis erupted. Here's John Donvan. The tapes cover what may have been the best six weeks of his political life, and it sounded like this. I want to tell you, you certainly deserve all this marvelous treatment. That was Bob Hope gushing over him. Here was film director John Ford. It was January and February 1973, a season of triumph, just sworn in for a second term, and he had no idea, no one did, that this was just before the fall. Yes, the Watergate scandal had begun to stalk him, but from a distance. I'm not going to comment on the case while it is still in the courts and on appeal. You get my point? But Watergate wasn't nearly his top concern then. Vietnam was. His Secretary of State Henry Kissinger in Paris leading talks to get the U.S. out with honor. Nixon followed every detail. It occurred to me that we really ought to have somebody with Henry when he's over there, you know, to tell him not to smile and things of that sort. And then when that deal was done, another triumph, he called his own wife. Kissinger's on his way back and we got the agreement. We know from these tapes. Mr. President, I find that Mr. Holdeman is out for about an hour. Could you get Mr. Ehrlichman, please? That in a pre-cell phone age... I find Mr. Ehrlichman and the missus are out until about 10.30. Even a president couldn't always reach his people. We also know that though he did not play it up, Nixon was a family man. Here's his daughter, Julie. Daddy, do you want to go um, out to dinner tonight? I'll tell you, if Mommy would like to go, I think it would be a nice idea. You explore it with her, and is Chris around? Yeah, and I think she'd like to go. Right. We'll go out and say that it's kind of a Valentine's dinner. Okay. It was February 13th, 1973. In less than 18 months, ordered to hand over his tapes, Richard Nixon would resign. John Donvan, ABC News, Washington. Welcome to Bridging the Political Gap. I'm Randall Wallace. And starting on January 20th, 1973, we begin a 10-day span that could be arguably considered one of the most extraordinary 10 days in all of American history. In it, we will in- inaugurate a president, end a divisive war, and say farewell to a president. In this 10 days, Richard Nixon will see his place in history soar to a dizzying height only achieved by George Washington, Abraham Lincoln, and Franklin Delano Roosevelt. And then the seeds will finally sprout fruit of an ominous shadow that will grow to overshadow in the eyes of the American public everything he had achieved. And all of it would occur in 10 days in January. 
regular program schedule will not be seen at this time so that we may bring you ABC News coverage of the 1973 presidential inauguration. ABC News presents Inauguration 73. Ceremonies at the White House, the Capitol, and coverage of the inaugural parade. Brought to you by the Savings and Loan Foundation on behalf of your nearby Savings and Loan Association. They want you to know how money works. And by Firestone, the people tire people who put steel between you and tire trouble. Now from Washington, ABC News correspondents Harry Reasoner and Howard K. Smith. Good morning from the nation's capital and welcome to the 47th inauguration of a president of the United States. This is the south portico of the White House, the rear entrance, sometimes more nobly called the diplomatic entrance. Usually presidents leave for their inauguration not from this entrance, but from the north entrance, the front entrance. But for reasons of his own, President Nixon wants to start the inauguration here at the south portico. But wherever he starts, he will end at the Capitol where Harry Reasoner maintains his informed vigil. Harry? Howard, we're assembling the audience here at the moment they're listening to the choir of the Combined Service Academies in weather that is not quite as good as President Nixon might have expected from what Washington was getting earlier in the week. At 11 o'clock, it's 41 degrees here. Uh, they don't expect it to go higher than 50. There's, the wind is gusty. It's normally 12 miles an hour, but it's been blowing a few papers around. And there is now uh, not much chance that there will be any further rain. A good deal of the important people are already here. Congress is fairly well assembled. The senators and congressmen came in, and except for those people, senators and congressmen, who are not coming, people like Pete McCloskey and Bella Abzug are very strong in the anti-war movement. Senator George McGovern, who has a speaking engagement in Oxford, which unfortunately kept him from coming to hear the president's speech. Senator Philip Hart, who is leading some of the uh, anti-war counter-inaugural ceremonies at a different part of Washington. But they're mostly here. Uh, the service academy strode in briskly. The congressmen straggled in. They're assembled, and uh, we'll be ready to go as soon as you get the president down here, Howard. Well, Harry, we'll try to move him along right on time, and I think he favors prompt uh, moving on occasions like this. After all, it's his day. Well, down on the White House lawn in front of that uh, south portico is ABC White House correspondent Tom Jarrell. Tom? Howard, President and Mrs. Nixon are inside. They returned here after a round of concert hopping last night, uh, got here shortly before midnight, and we're told at that point uh, the President went to the Lincoln sitting room and uh, worked until well past midnight on his inaugural address and also reading cables from General Alexander Haig in Saigon, keeping up with uh, the latest in the negotiations. Uh, at the moment, Vice President Agnew is inside, along with several members of the Joint uh, Escort Committee from the Congress, the President and Mrs. Nixon are hosting a coffee for them this morning. At about 11.15, the uh, party will come out and uh, get in their limousines and depart from here for the uh, drive up to the hill, a distance of about 12 blocks from here. This is Tom Jarrell at the South Portico entrance to the White House. Well, Tom, we have a videotape made just a short while ago of Vice President Agnew arriving. Normally, the... Uh, the uh, incoming president uh, is escorted by the outgoing one 
But uh, today, the most important man who will uh, accompany the president is Vice President Agnew, the former governor of Maryland, who came in just a moment ago with uh, his wife, Judy Agnew, and with the Speaker of the House of Representatives, uh, Carl Albert. And before we show you more on this, we'll have more on Inauguration 73 in a moment, right after this message. Well, we're here about uh, at the same level and about 200 feet east of where the president will be speaking before too long. One of the best views of the inaugural ceremony that will soon take place on that podium in front of the Capitol. We have other people scattered around the city who will be bringing you the events leading up to the formal ceremony and then describing the parade afterwards. For example, while we're out in the east portico of the Capitol, the important dignitaries have been coming in side in the big central rotunda and down there in the rotunda is ABC's Sam Donaldson. Harry, this is the cavernous great rotunda of the Capitol. Behind me, the diplomatic corps is filing through. We've already seen the members of Congress, as you point out. The governors have done it. The Supreme Court and other members of the official party will be coming through in just a few moments. The president himself will not actually walk through the great rotunda. Now, that story is best covered by Herb Kaplow, who is down one floor below me, and directly on the east front at the law library entrance. Well, this is the entrance through which the president will enter the Capitol, go up that one flight of stairs, and then appear on the inaugural platform. With me is presidential news secretary Ronald Ziegler. Mr. Ziegler, what did the president do this morning? Well, the president uh, got up shortly before 8 o'clock and uh, had a light breakfast and continued uh, work on his inaugural address, which he'll deliver here in just a few moments. Spent some time with the family and then of course, at this time, he's having a coffee for the escort committee and uh, Vice President Mrs. Agnew at the uh, White House. Can you tell us how he prepared the inaugural address? Well, he worked on it uh, quite intensively in Florida uh, when he was in Key Biscayne. Uh, but uh, since uh, November the 7th, since Election Day, he has uh, been writing down thoughts and, and notes uh, relating to the inaugural address. But he had many other things uh, on his uh, uh, desk uh, during that period. So he spend a good deal of time in Key Biscayne uh, uh, finishing the uh, inaugural address. Was there any central theme that he expressed and indicated he was working on in connection with this inauguration the second? Well, I hate to uh, predict what the president will say when he'll be uh, speaking uh, to the American people in just a few moments, but of course he'll be looking to head to the future, uh, the future of this country, uh, not only in domestic affairs, but also foreign policy matters. Did he discuss with you or any of the other people who work with him on such matters, the difference between this inauguration, his second, and the first one four years ago today? Well, the uh, first inauguration, of course, was the start of the Nixon years, the start of the first term. Uh, this inauguration is a continuation, and uh, I think he looks at uh, this as a very important uh, moment uh, in his eight years in the White House, uh, because it is a a continuation, but also a new beginning. Well, we would assume, of course, he feels pretty good about the day and about the likelihood or what seems to be progress toward a Vietnam solution. What is the situation there in Senate? Well, I can't uh, speak to that subject beyond what we've already said uh, on the subject at the White House. We just to say very little. That's correct. Well, let me ask you this. Has he been reflective at all about this inauguration uh, in his expressions to you? Well, I can't say that he has been reflective because he's had a good deal to do since November the 7th, and there really hasn't been time to reflect uh, on uh, matters. It's a time of action. It's a time of work uh, for the president. He's had the reorganization uh, plans to put together, which he has done. 
uh, a new government, new government to form, a new for the second term, and of course the negotiations have been keeping him quite busy. So he has not been in a reflective mood. He's been in the in a posture of uh, working at the job. Thank you very much. We have been speaking with Ronald Ziegler, the president's new secretary, from a point where the president will enter and, after the inauguration ceremonies, leave to return to the White House to review the inaugural parade. The president will leave the plaza, turn down onto Constitution Avenue, and head back to the White House. And across the street from the Capitol is Ted Koppel. It is at this juncture of Constitution and Delaware Avenues that the President and his party will leave the Capitol grounds and make their way down for what is actually the presidential procession. The inaugural parade will not join them until a couple of blocks down. Uh, from this point, it will be the President and his family, the Vice President and his family, members of uh, senior members of Congress and members of the inaugural committee who will be making their way down to an area two blocks from here where they will be joined by the parade itself. At that point is my colleague Bill Zimmerman. They'll be coming by the intersection here of Constitution and Pennsylvania Avenue where you see some army vehicles. That is the clockworks of this parade. They'll be the people trying to keep the parade moving briskly along. It'll move past the U.S. courthouse where, among other things, the Watergate trial is now going on. And down uh, Pennsylvania Avenue to 15th Street at the Treasury Department where there'll be a right turn to go up uh, and continue down Pennsylvania Avenue to the White House. Two blocks behind me at 3rd and Madison, the units of the parade are now marshalling, getting ready to begin. And my colleague Stephen Gere is there. Now, the spirit of 76 is very much in evidence here. That's the first float of the parade, and the floats go as far as the eye can see around the corner for two blocks, and there are going to be military units and marching units. It strikes me that parade watching is a little bit like dining at a restaurant. You don't care much about what's going on in the kitchen. Don't even think about it. This is, if you will, the kitchen area of the parade. This is where order is brought out of chaos. At least the 500 people here, military people and uh, police personnel, are trying to bring order out of chaos. And very soon these units will be coming up to the corner of Pennsylvania and 3rd here and dispersing, they hope, in order. Howard, I hope you enjoy the parade or the meal. Steve, as this city was originally designed, that route was supposed to be a straight line from the Capitol to the White House, but Andrew Jackson built the Treasury next door to the White House in the way, so at the point at the bottom of our picture, uh, President Nixon will have to make a, a nick in his route. Now, here is President Nixon. He's entered his car, and I think this is only the third time that a closed car has been used for an inaugural uh, procession, and he's leaving now from the south portico and the south entrance of the White House and going out onto the streets that will take him to the Capitol. He is a few minutes early. It's a nine-minute drive to the Capitol. Uh, there you see behind him the Rose Garden, which was created by Jacqueline Kennedy, now Jacqueline Kennedy Onassis. Here's Vice President Agnew and Mrs. Judy Agnew. Her name isn't really Judy. Her last name is Judifund, and she has that nickname. Mike Mansfield, the uh, Senate Majority Leader, driving with him. The Vice President's only constitutional duty is to be the President of the Senate, which he is. And uh, Mike Mansfield's the most powerful man in the Senate as the Majority Leader. They will follow the President's car. And uh, there will be others in this... Uh... There in the uh, front row, you see George Schultz, who is the President's uh, foremost man on economic matters now, as Secretary of the Treasury, and... 
Secretary of State William Pierce Rogers, who used to be a long time ago Assistant Attorney General, to uh, there's uh, outgoing Secretary of Defense Laird, and behind him Walter Hickel, who I think was the first man fired from the cabinet by President Nixon, whose head is bowed now. John Mitchell to the right of the screen with his hat on, who used to be the Attorney General, still a close presidential advisor. Some people came, Howard, in uh, much lighter clothes than they were, uh, would have liked to have worn if they'd known it was going to be 41 degrees instead of a possible 55 or 60. There's John Connolly. There's George Romney. Outgoing Secretary of HUD. Behind him, Peter Peterson, who has left, uh, is leaving as Secretary of Commerce. And Roy Ash, just to the left of the screen, the man about whom there's been a great deal of controversy, who planned the reorganization of the executive branch of government, former head of Lytton Industries. And Ann Armstrong, the pretty lady in the foreground, the only lady of cabinet level, who's recently appointed. Mamie Eisenhower, who's been here before. Yeah. Right behind Mamie Eisenhower, the Nixon daughters, and Trisha Nixon's husband, Edward Cox. Everyone here is standing for Mrs. Eisenhower's arrival. And this, in effect, marks the beginning of the formal ceremonies. We're waiting now for the president. Just behind uh, Agnew, you might have seen the silver top of William O. Douglas, Associate Justice of the Supreme Court. There's the president now. Senator Marlowe Cook of the Joint Congressional Inaugural Committee. The audience is sitting now after the ceremonial entries. Mr. President, are you ready to take the constitutional oath? If you will place your left hand on the Bible and raise your right hand, and please repeat after me. I, Richard Nixon, do solemnly swear. I, Richard Nixon, do solemnly swear. That I will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States. That I will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States. And will, to the best of my ability, and will, to the best of my ability, preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. Preserve and protect and defend the Constitution of the United States. So help me God. So help me God. Mr. Vice President, Mr. Speaker, Mr. Chief Justice, Senator Cook, Mrs. Eisenhower, and my fellow citizens of this great and good country we share together. 
When we met here four years ago, America was bleak in spirit, depressed by the prospect of seemingly endless war abroad and of destructive conflict at home. As we meet here today, we stand on the threshold of a new era of peace in the world. The central question before us is, how shall we use that peace? Let us resolve that this era we are about to enter will not be what other post-war periods have so often been, a time of retreat and isolation that leads to stagnation at home and invites new danger abroad. Let us resolve that this will be what it can become a time of great responsibilities greatly born, in which we renew the spirit and the promise of America as we enter our third century as a nation. This past year saw far-reaching results from our new policies for peace. By continuing to revitalize our traditional friendships and by our missions to Peking and to Moscow, we were able to establish the base for a new and more durable pattern of relationships among the nations of the world. Because of America's bold initiatives, 1972 will be long remembered as the year of the greatest progress since the end of World War II toward a lasting peace in the world. The peace we seek in the world is not the flimsy peace, which is merely an interlude between wars, but a peace which can endure for generations to come. It is important that we understand both the necessity and the limitations of America's role in maintaining that peace. Unless we in America work to preserve the peace, there will be no peace. Unless we in America work to preserve freedom, there will be no freedom. But let us clearly understand the new nature of America's role as a result of the new policies we have adopted over these past four years. We shall respect our treaty commitments. We shall support vigorously the principle that no country has the right to impose its will or rule on another by force. We shall continue in this era of negotiation to work for the limitation of nuclear arms and to reduce the danger of confrontation between the great powers. We shall do our share in defending peace and freedom in the world, but we shall expect others to do their share. The time has passed when America will make every other nation's conflict our own, or make every other nation's future our responsibility, or presume to tell the people of other nations how to manage their own affairs. Just as we respect the right of each nation to determine its own future, we also recognize the responsibility of each nation to secure its own future.
Just as America's role is indispensable in preserving the world's peace, so is each nation's role indispensable in preserving its own peace. Together with the rest of the world, let us resolve to move forward from the beginnings we have made. Let us continue to bring down the walls of hostility which have divided the world for too long and to build in their place bridges of understanding so that despite profound differences between systems of government, the people of the world can be friends. Let us build a structure of peace in the world in which the weak are as safe as the strong, in which each respects the right of the other to live by a different system, in which those who would influence others will do so by the strength of their ideas and not by the force of their arms. Let us accept that high responsibility, not as a burden, but gladly. Gladly, because the chance to build such a peace is the noblest endeavor in which a nation could engage. And gladly also, because only we, if we act greatly in meeting our responsibilities abroad, will we remain a great nation. And only if we remain a great nation will we act greatly in meeting our challenges at home. We have the chance today to do more than ever before in our history to make life better in America, to ensure better education, better health, better housing, better transportation, a cleaner environment, to restore respect for law, to make our communities more livable, and to ensure the God-given right of every American to full and equal opportunity. Because the range of our needs is so great, because the reach of our opportunities is so great, let us be bold in our determination to meet those needs in new ways. Just as building a structure of peace abroad has required turning away from old policies that had failed, so building a new era of progress at home requires turning away from old policies that have failed. Abroad, the shift from old policies to new has not been a retreat from our responsibilities, but a better way to peace. And at home, the shift from old policies to new will not be a retreat from our responsibilities, but a better way to progress. Abroad and at home, the key to those new responsibilities lies in the placing and the division of responsibility. We have to live too long with the consequences of attempting to gather all power and responsibility in Washington. Abroad and at home, the time has come to turn away from the condescending policies of paternalism, 
of Washington Knows Best. A person can be expected to act responsibly only if he has responsibility. This is human nature. So let us encourage individuals at home and nations abroad to do more for themselves, to decide more for themselves. Let us locate responsibility in more places, and let us measure what we will do for others by what they will do for themselves. That is why today I offer no promise of a purely governmental solution for every problem. We have lived too long with that false promise. In trusting too much in government, we have asked of it more than it can deliver. This leads only to inflated expectations, to reduced individual effort, and to a disappointment and frustration that erode confidence both in what government can do and in what people can do. Government must learn to take less from people so that people can do more for themselves. Let us remember that America was built not by government but by people, not by welfare but by work, not by shirking responsibility but by seeking responsibility. In our own lives, let each of us ask, not just what will government do for me, but what can I do for myself? In the challenges we face together, let each of us ask, not just how can government help, but how can I help? Your national government has a great and vital role to play. And I pledge to you that where this government should act, we will act boldly and we will lead boldly. But just as important is the role that each and every one of us must play as an individual and as a member of his own community. From this day forward, let each of us make a solemn commitment in his own heart to bear his responsibility to do his part, to live his ideals, so that together we can see the dawn of a new age of progress for America, and together as we celebrate our 200th anniversary as a nation, we can do so proud in the fulfillment of our promise to ourselves and to the world. As America's longest and most difficult war comes to an end, let us again learn to debate our differences with civility and decency. And let each of us reach out for that one precious quality government cannot provide, a new level of respect for the rights and feelings of one another, a new level of respect for the individual human dignity which is the cherished birthright of every American.
above all else, the time has come for us to renew our faith in ourselves and in America. In recent years, that faith has been challenged. Our children have been taught to be ashamed of their country, ashamed of their parents, ashamed of America's record at home and in its role in the world. At every turn, we have been beset by those who find everything wrong with America and little that is right. But I am confident that this will not be the judgment of history on these remarkable times in which we are privileged to live. America's record in this century has been unparalleled in the world's history for its responsibility, for its generosity, for its creativity, and for its progress. Let us be proud that our system has produced and provided more freedom and more abundance, more widely shared than any system in the history of the world. Let us be proud that in each of the four wars in which we have been engaged in this century, including the one we are now bringing to an end, we have fought not for our selfish advantage, but to help others resist aggression. And let us be proud that by our bold new initiatives, by our steadfastness for peace with honor, we have made a breakthrough toward creating in the world what the world has not known before, a structure of peace that can last, not merely for our time, but for generations to come. We are embarking here today on an era that presents challenges as great as those any nation or any generation has ever faced. We shall answer to God, to history, and to our conscience for the way in which we use these years. As I stand in this place, so hallowed by history, I think of others who have stood here before me. I think of the dreams they had for America, and I think of how each recognized that he needed help far beyond himself in order to make those dreams come true. Today, I ask your prayers that in the years ahead I may have God's help in making decisions that are right for America, and I pray for your help so that together we may be worthy of our challenge. Let us pledge together to make these next four years the best four years in America's history, so that on its 200th birthday, America will be as young and as vital as when it began, and as bright a beacon of hope for all the world. Let us go forward from here, confident in hope, strong in our faith in one another, sustained by our faith in God who created us, and striving always to serve his purpose.
roughly a 16-minute address about par for uh, American inaugural speeches. And following fairly logically from President Nixon's first inaugural address, in which he put a great deal of emphasis on the chances for peace, four years now without peace, but in the very beginning of his talk, he indicated that we are on the threshold of it, that something is going to end the war in Vietnam. Randall Wallace, uh, your host for Bridging the Political Gap. I want to thank you first for tuning in to our podcast and invite you to come to our website, randallwallace.com. There you can get a copy of our book, Always Vote Your Conscience, Don't Take It Personally, and Don't Fight the Same Old Battles Over and Over Again, with a lot of policy suggestions and things that I think everyone can embrace, an argument for why we need to be working together instead of fighting with each other. Also, you can take a look at the first 11 episodes of this podcast, which was a podcast documentary that looked at the World War II generation of bipartisan leadership that built the American century and the lessons we can learn from them to apply to today's situations. Again, thanks for tuning in to our podcast. And if you've enjoyed our show, please leave us a review at wherever you get your podcast. And now, let's get back to the show. scheduled to be about 45 minutes. Every four years, when the Congress stages these inauguration ceremonies at the Capitol, they also buy lunch for the president and vice president and their wives and a number of other guests. And uh, traditionally, they do not allow cameras or coverage of the lunch. It's a period when all of the principals can relax in what is otherwise a fairly tiring and public day. Mr. Nixon spoke for 16 and a half minutes, as I said, about par for inaugural addresses, and uh, a little bit shorter than his first inaugural speech four years ago, which also was about par. Presidents usually have less to say on their uh, uh, second inaugural and doing their first, as Mr. Lincoln said in his second inaugural. In the first, you have to sort of introduce yourself and your programs and policies, and in the second, uh, just sort of tell how you've carried them out and how you think things stand. Mr. Mr. Nixon obviously thinks things stand pretty well, don't you think, Howard? Yes, um, to, to no one's surprise. I uh, acknowledge three themes in that. By the way, we've changed our view now. We're in the other side of the White House, the north side of the White House, where you can see the president stand where he will review the parade. Well, in the inaugural address, the president spoke first of not just having a peace, but a peace that will endure and one that wants, wants the Americans flee back into isolation. He talked about uh, government trying to do too much for people. People must do more for themselves. And he so talked on the theme of don't be ashamed of the United States. It's not a place to be ashamed of. He also said, uh, I thought, an interesting parallel to a sentence from John Kennedy's speech 
12 years ago when uh, the, the phrase that you hear more than any other phrase from Mr. Kennedy's speech, ask not what, you can, what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. Mr. Nixon had a sentence which said, let it, each of us ask not just what will government do for me, but what can I do for myself, which in a way is... Um, is saying some of the same thing, but much more pragmatically. Yes. He uh, is not hesitant about imitating speeches that he has admired in the past. He took that from Kennedy, and in his previous inaugural address, he took the I Have a Dream theme from Martin Luther King's speech made during the March on Washington in, I think, 1962. And he does that quite frankly. Well, we have a number of interesting things to do, and we'll do them. We'll have more on Inauguration 73 in a moment, right after this message. Thank you for listening to Bridging the Political Gap. If you've liked what you've heard, please share it. And we would love to hear from you and your thoughts on, on our show. So if you'd like to, please leave a review wherever you get your podcast. And until next time, thanks again and so long for now.